1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Aisha Irani, who is Associate Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Massachusetts. We're speaking with her about uh, a fantastic new publication that is precisely the sort of publication uh, that motivated us to to branch out from Hindu studies to Indian religions broadly. Um, Her new OUP book is uh, The Muhammad Adara. Salvation, History, Translation, and the Making of Bengali Islam. Aisha, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's a real pleasure to talk to you about my new book.
1: Ah, pleasure is mine. The Muhammad Avatara. So, the making of Bengali Islam, you know, uh, for many of our listeners, what do you mean by Bengali Islam? Can you say a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so... um. In the context of what I do, um, I believe that all Islam in some sense is local Islam. Uh, And uh, as Islam moved across geopolitical frontiers, it came to be localized. And um, the way I treat this localization is through the lens of translation and um, so, so I, what I'm studying is uh, an early biography of the prophet, the first to be written in Bengali for Bengalis, um, translated from Persian and Arabic sources into Bangla. And so I study the ways in which this translator localizes an Arab prophet within the cultural landscape of Bengal. And in that sense, I'm speaking about the formation of a Bengali Islam through uh, the writing of a salvation history of Islam uh, for Bengal.
1: You know, in answering the question about what is uh, Bengali Islam, uh, you've uh, preempted uh, Uh, Another of my questions, which was essentially, what was your book about? What was your object of study? Um, And so uh, the book is entirely focused on this uh, Bangla um, 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 hagiography of the Prophet Muhammad, correct? Is that your primary data?
0: That's right. So um, the main focus of this book is um, a 17th century biography of the Prophet Muhammad entitled the Nabi Bangsha. It's been written by um, someone called Sayyid Sultan, who we know about through various um, period sources as a Sufi peer. Um, and he basically writes this, this um, what I call a salvation history. It's written as a universal history in that it starts with cosmogony, goes through the traditional line of um, Judeo-Islamic prophets uh, from Adam through um, Isa, and then moving on to a full-blown biography of the prophet Muhammad himself.
1: And so, why do you call it a salvation history?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, by calling it a salvation history, I am talking about how um, history is divinely ordained. Yes, that all aspects of the past, present, and future are part of a cosmic plan. So, in that sense, we're dealing with a religious history um, that has as its beginning the beginnings of the cosmos itself and um, as divinely ordained by Allah it uh, it runs through um, these various uh, prophetic exemplar leading up to uh, the life of the prophet Muhammad. So Muhammad then becomes the telos of religious history, and um, he becomes the, the uh, end point, so to speak, of this grand salvation history that uh, Sayyid Sultan writes.
1: So uh, twofold. Uh, sort of broad view question. Um, are there other biographies of the Prophet Muhammad uh, that this compares to? And maybe a flip side of that question is, um, 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 are there others in in, 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 in the Indic context, um, uh, Meghali or otherwise? Is this is the only one that we see in this region.
0: Right, so um, I'll talk about the local context first and then move to the broader context. So. Uh, In Bengal and for Bengal, um, Sayyid Sultan's work is the first biography or the first, in fact, large scale work written um, on Islam um, during the early modern period. And um, it becomes a pioneering text for later authors of prophetic biography to um, imitate. Uh, but his is the very first. So after him, you have um, authors such as Sheikh John who writes his Rasul Um You have um, uh, the Anbiya Bani Kabbo written by Hayat Mahmood. Uh, but these are all um, 18th century texts, whereas um, Sayyid Sultan's uh, Magnum Opus comes from the 17th century, so that's the Bengali context. Uh, more broadly, um, you, this biography translates what is known as the Kissa Sulhunbiya genre or the Tales of the Prophet genre, which is uh, comes to us in various different forms. Um, an important version of this, these tales were written by Al-Kisai, uh, an apocryphal author, uh, and um, these, these, these were, you know, um, written in Arabic. And then the uh, Kisai's tales then became the exemplar that was then translated by various Persian authors into the on Ha'i uh, in Persian by people like Jaweri, Muhammad Jaweri, by um, uh, Nisha Puri. And these then become uh, the, the windows through which um, Sayyid Sultan receives the Qisso or the Tales of the Prophets. And um, while his translation, seems to follow Kisai in many details. He also, um, I believe that it is through a Persian exemplar that he is receiving much of Kisai.
1: What Indic um, influences do we see in this text? Perhaps uh, uh, perhaps uh, we could even touch on the title, the Muhammad Avatara.
0: The ways in which um, the prophet comes to be localized within a Bengali context is sort of key to uh, the the sophisticated strategies of translation that this author uses. And uh, the Muhammad avatar sort of um, encapsulates in some sense, as you point out, uh, the ways in which translation functions within this text. So, um, in the text itself, Muhammad is referred to by the author as um, uh, Allah's own avatar. Yes, um, and he is he is also referred to as the Kali avatar or the avatar for the Kali age, and in this sense. Um, the author is using translation as a way, not only just to enculturate the prophet within uh, the Bengali context, but to displace other rival uh, religious traditions, uh, including uh, especially Vaishnavism. Yes, so um, boring, a period in the 16th century and in the 17th century, particularly, uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism has become uh, extremely popular in in rural Bengal, and um, one of the one of the overt uh, and explicit missions of uh, our author in writing his text is to create a rival text to the various traditions and tales of Ram and Krishna that he hears in the Bengal countryside. So um, not only is he now enculturating Muhammad to Bengal, but he's also creating uh, or setting up a rival for um, not only Krishna within this uh, this multi-religious environment, but he is also uh, attempting now to displace uh, not only Krishna, but Krishna Chaitanya, who was the founder of the Gaudiya Vaishnava movement, and um, who was also known uh, in the Gaudiya Vaishnav tradition as the Kali avatar.
1: I just find it so fascinating, the cross-pollination, and of course we have no choice but to anachronistically perhaps try to slice and dice things and see them through the lenses of scholarship and world religions and if somebody held a gun to your head and asked is this an... <laughs> you have to answer um is this uh, is this uh, an innovation of indic religion or, or or is this an islamic innovation or is it both how might you how might one think of that
0: the the cross-pollination as being an. um uh as being
1: is this text innovating yeah is this text innovating indic religion islamic religion or both
0: well i think it is doing both right uh so um uh, in terms of innovation i think any new religious tradition is going to bring in aspects of continuity and change, yes? So any new religion coming into um, a landscape where uh, there there is is a multi-religious landscape uh, is going to bring in elements of the past, whether it be, um, you know, um, the past, uh, that comes from another geographical area or the past of that particular geographical area, the target culture in which it wants to now uh, find a new home. Um, so, um, in some sense, uh, manipulation of uh, the original environment, in this case, say, Arabic and Persian sources, um, is taking place uh, in order to now reformulate uh, the Arabic and Persian traditions of the prophets uh, for Bengal. Um, At the same time, uh, what our author is very uniquely doing is that he is reformulating tales of Krishna himself. who he is now um, bringing into this line of prophets as a new prophet. And um, uh, Krishna, in Sayyid Sultan's retelling uh, is a miserable failure as a prophet. Um, and, And he creates an entire Parodic meta text of the tales of Krishna that we hear from the Bhagavat that have probably reached him through various oral renditions of Krishna Leela performances in Bengal.
1: <laughs> That's incredibly fascinating. Um, uh, what is the central uh, takeaway argument of the book? What are you arguing for?
0: There are many takeaways. Um, I think that one of the important takeaways is that the book offers a fresh look at how Islamization took place in Bengal. And I think that this is a rather understudied area. Um, And we have, uh, for instance, uh, two very important works that were written in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, The first was that of Oshim Roy, who uh, wrote his book, a literary history of what he called the syncretistic traditions of of Bengal, where he proffered an analysis of um, how, uh, how Islam reached the masses via what he called cultural mediators uh, who uh, breached or um, breached the gap between great and little traditions. Um, On the other hand, you have, uh, you know, uh, Richard Eaton's study of uh, Bengal and its Islamization, especially under the Mukhals, uh, which brings together all kinds of data from Persian sources, as well as, you know, documentary, archeological, geographical, topographical, uh, art historical data to argue um, that um, it is is the Sufis uh, or pioneers on the Islamic frontier, the agrarian frontier, who ultimately were the ones to um, to expand uh, the frontiers of Islam in Bengal. Um, my study ra- looks at how Islam was, um, or conversion to Islam was represented to have happened uh, in the writings of Sayyid Sultan. So uh, rather than looking at how conversion to Islam happened, which is part of uh, Richard Eaton's argument. I am now looking at uh, Syed Sultan's past and his understanding of the past or his recourse to the past through the lens of uh, what has come to be called Nemo history. Uh, This is a term coined by uh, Jan Osman in his uh, study of the past, and he uses this term to uh, help us uh, think about um, how people have remembered the past, and that is what I'm really concerned with in in my study. Um, I also use translation theory to uh, create a model of how Translation comes to contextualize conversion. So, how translation of salvation history can now uh, be become part of the grammar of uh, literization? Yes, how it comes to be put into um, literary form um, and. And that is something that um, I provide a a model for, uh, a hermeneutical model for, which I think would uh, sort of expand the ways in which we have begun to understand uh, pre-modern translation. Um, Another aspect of um, this study is that in some ways it opens up um, uh, the importance of continuing to explore, you know, the various components of Islamization in Bengal, and I think one piece of that puzzle is uh, that has hasn't been so far studied is is uh, how Buddhism played, uh, the, either the decline of Buddhism uh, played into uh, the Islamization of Bengal, and that's not something that has been studied in much detail. And I think that that is a complementary history that needs to be written about this time and uh, place. Um, The other aspect is that um, this study sort of lays bare uh, the kinds of asymmetries of power on the ground uh, at in the early modern period. And while very little is known about Gaudiya Vaishnavism spread into the Southeast of Bengal, um, this text, because it it emerges from uh, Arakhani's Chittagong, um, an area that was ruled by Buddhist rulers, um, it, it tells you on the one hand that um, Gaudiya Vaishnavism was on the rise, whereas Buddhism was not considered to be a threat by uh, Muslims of that region for the spread of their faith.
1: Could you say a little bit more about uh, the, 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 the hermeneutic model that you adopt, that you advance, and maybe in tandem say something about who might be interested? In this book, who may benefit from reading it?
0: Yes, so um, this model basically adopts um, Steiner's model of uh, translation, while considering how a translation comes to be influenced by principles of conversion. So essentially what I'm saying is that um, this model is underpinned by the fact that for Sayyid Sultan, uh, faithfulness to an original text is not as important as uh, being effectively understood by his audience so for him then uh, communicating with his audience principles of Islam to make them as as easily intelligible uh, for for his audience that is more important than sticking to some kind of uh, original uh, the uh, text and it is it is it's very interesting how when I was first reading this 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 text I kept you know fighting my own impulse for you know this hegemonic understanding of an original and um which is so 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 much you know part of our Modern day uh, impulse uh, uh, with regard to understanding translation, but for a pre-modern author, it was it was much less much less important to stick to a source text than to be able to manipulate that source text in whatever way he needed to be able to communicate his ideals of Islam to his audience. So that is what this hermeneutic model is basically about.
1: May I just say? Yes. Please, may I just uh, comment on that? And then perhaps you can talk about who might be interested. Uh, I can't help but draw comparisons, perhaps because I gave a class this morning on Puranas. It's part of an Uh intro uh Indian religions course it's um what's it called? Uh, the textual tapestry. So this morning's class was on the Puranas and there's this impulse, you know, scholarship has been uh, struggling with this impulse to, you know, to find the real Purana, to find the critical text. You know, I was narrating the story of the beheading of Ganesha, or Ganesha's how he got his elephant head and due to the students who in the store we use things like apps and i was talking about shiva needing anger management courses and etc 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 but the point was not just regaling them with tales of old because apparently i'm an incarnate bard but the point was to to share with them that the 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 the, the puranas are dynamic they're meant to reach the audience, they tell you that they're ancient, but they're telling you that perhaps is a bit of an overcompensation because what they really are is a a current cultural software on how to package Indic ideas, uh, advance a certain platform. And I just see such a parallel between the project of the Puranas, uh, perhaps even the storytelling in general, and, and what you just said about your own research. So I had to interject, but please continue.
0: Uh, since you bring up the Purans, um, I, I should also mention that what Sayyid Sultan is doing with the Nabi Vansha is really something quite fascinating. So um, before he begins his, his analysis of or presents the tale cycles of the traditional Islamic prophets from Adam to Isa and then on to Muhammad he brings into this entire cosmogonic uh, structure, um, the Vaishnava avatars. So the Vaishnava avatars then creates this entire, um, this set up this, setup, this enti- entire antecedent uh, uh, or pre uh, you know, a, a, a genealogy that precedes uh, Adam. Um, and they become essentially um, failed, failed prophets. Yes, and um, it is the failure of these uh, these Vaishnav avatars, uh, including the Ram avatar, uh, who then which then calls for the uh, advent of Adam, um, and then, uh, Hari or Krishna is the only. One of the, you know, the avatars or the ten avatars of Vishnu, who plays a prominent role within the Judeo-Islamic uh, tale cycle itself. So uh, the um, uh, the the tale cycle of Hari then uh, is is interspersed between the tale cycle of Abraham and Moses. And then you have uh, between, uh, this is this is actually the place in the original Kissa Solanbiya tales, where uh, Joseph would typically have, um, uh, Yusuf, yes, the tale of Yusuf would typically have uh, come in. And uh, Yusuf, of course, in many ways, um, is this prophetic exemplar who is both Uh, beautiful in and of himself and becomes, um, you know, attractive to women. Um, And so in in that sense, um, Krishna becomes a suitable uh, translational equivalent for Yusuf. And so we are having uh, you know here 's another way in which translation operates within within the text, and of course, uh, when I was thinking about this, you know initially, my impulse was, well, um, you know how can we call this 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 part of the text a translation? What is it actually translating and in fact, when you think about it 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 becomes a symbolic translation of of the Krishna tales in the Bhagavat, and so um, uh, there are many elements of the Purans then that come to reside within this larger, um, you know, Islamic salvation history. And what is what is also uh, fascinating then is that Sayyid Sultan is now creating uh, what he, what. Could have been called a Puran-Quran Quran salvation history. Yes, this is a term that comes up in the writings of medieval Bengali Muslim authors, um, and um, it, what he is then creating is a Puran-Quran Quran history of, of.
1: You know, it's. Yes. It's uh, equally fascinating and and reassuring to hear you say that. In that, initially, I thought, well, I'm I'm probably projecting much of my own object of study and methodology into 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 this uh, account. Of course, I I don't know very much about the subfield that you're an expert in. So I thought, this is awfully Puranic in texture and flavor and frame narratives. So it's actually uh, fantastic to hear you say yes, in your expert opinion, it is. (laughs) Who might uh, benefit from reading this book?
0: So um, this, of course, could be widely used by, you know, uh, people who study South Asia. more widely, I think it could be used by people interested in translation. Yes, um, translation theorists uh, and so on and so forth. But of course, religious historians in general, and of course, Islamicists, uh, I think would would find the book interesting. Um, so those are the, the the broadly the the key. Uh, audiences for which the book has been written
1: it's um really is fascinating can you say a word um for those wondering about um the the state of islam in bengal today
0: so of course um you know um post 1947 um and the partition of india um we have uh, and 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 we had of course the formation of east pakistan um and then later on we had the um the the growth and you know the the 1971 uh, war of liberation uh that ultimately resulted in the creation of bangladesh um so of course in bangladesh islam is well and thriving, and um, and we have, uh, you know, a majority Muslim nation with barely three percent of the population, which is um, which is Hindu. Um, so so in that sense, um, it, 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 but in some sense, you know, um, partition of course has skewed uh, the ways in which we we. Have uh, we can think about Greater India and uh, the pre-modern period, um, but I'll leave it there.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating and important. And as I, uh, I want to touch on that it is quite literally um, um, works such as yours uh, um, that that warrant calling this, uh, more broadly a podcast on Indian religions plural. Uh, um, Not even just Indic religions from Dharmic traditions, but sort of the the religions that that have taken root and have shaped what we think of as civilizational India. um, If
0: I may just add, um, uh, one important aspect of my book is the fact that, um, you know, I deal with a, a Chittagong that was ruled by the Arakanese. Um, sometime between the late um, 16th and mid 17th centuries, um, and of course, um, while I was writing the book, uh, we had this great refugee um, m- migration of the Rohingyas. Uh, some have called it, you know, um, you know the the, the a genocidal war against uh, the Rohingya populations of Myanmar, um, and today, many of these refugees are now housed in Bangladesh. And uh, while I was sort of writing the conclusion to the book, it it sort of, um, there was a, a tinge of nostalgia about uh, a time when, you know, these, these borders and partitions did not exist. And there was a a greater movement of peoples uh, through the riverine networks of Bengal uh, and uh, these these kinds of um, rifts between the nation states that have uh, now populated our globe. Uh, didn 't exist in an, in an earlier period, of course wars still existed, but um, uh, there was much greater uh, movement of peoples uh, across across borders uh, in an earlier period so uh, there was this, this sense of uh, nostalgia uh, as i as I completed uh, the the uh, end of this book, particularly because I had been working with communities in Chittagong who had now um, reified uh, Syed Sultan as a peer in their uh, area. And um, they had, uh, you know, miraculously uh, received the cots. Uh, that Syed Sultan was supposed to have slept on uh, from uh, Arakan, where he is supposed to have died. And he uh, sent this cot upriver along the Naf River, which uh, bifurcates uh, Bangladesh from Arakan today. uh, you know, it is the same river that many, many of the uh, Ar- um, Myanmaris could not, the Rohingya could not cross because um, of, you know, government controls and the patrolling of that river. But that caught in a pre-modern period was sent up and it reached the uh, in Chilong. So, about how rivers uh, can become uh, both, uh, you know, these spaces which connect as well as divide people.
1: That's a fascinating point. Um, is there anything else about the book that you had hoped we touch on?
0: I think we've covered, um, you know, the most important salient features of the book and uh, yeah thank you for for taking the time to read it and uh and uh help me think about think through it with you again
1: uh you're most welcome um i have the easy part of asking the questions don't i <laughs> um great no it's it's a pleasure it's a bit of a public service and a service to our colleagues who listen and engage um uh, how appropriate the book is for teaching purposes, perhaps, or even research, so it really is a pleasure and it's become um <laughs> this podcast began as sort of this uh, this this favor and then it was this kind of hobby and now it 's a little bit of a lifestyle <laughs> so...
0: Wonderful. It, it's certainly a service to the uh, community at large uh, and our uh you know uh, academic community as well
1: fantastic. So um, thank you very much for appearing today. Um, For those of you listening, you're welcome. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Aisha Irani on her fascinating uh, new OUP publication, The Muhammad Avatar. Um, Until next time, stay safe, uh, stay sane, Uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the interplay between Islam and Indian religions. Take care.